Um, hello, everyone. Cliff Smith here. I am the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series. Uh, today, we have to, I have a guest who is a, has a very unusual and interesting story, Mr. Len Kudorowski. Am I pronouncing that right? Pretty close. How, how would I pronounce it? <laughs> uh, it's Kudorkowski. You missed the K. They're, they're, Kudorkowski. Okay, excuse me. Crypto. Um, Mr. Kodakovsky um, previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Digital Strategy, which worked on all manner of foreign policy issues, and then Senior Advisor for Global Public Affairs in the U.S. Department of State, working for then-Iran envoy Brian Hook on communications issues specifically related to the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Um, he was also involved in the Abraham Accords, um, but peace between Israel and several Arab and Muslim-majority countries, among other things. So welcome, very, welcome, Len. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, just FYI, due to scheduling issues, this, this webinar was pre-recorded, so unfortunately we won't be able to take any audience questions this time, um, but I'm confident we'll find a lot to enjoy and uh, try to answer the best questions I can. Uh, Len, let me start out with a more general question. Um, your undergraduate work was in political science, but your graduate work was in visual arts and graphic design. You spent a lot of time in advertising. You want to give me a brief sort of um, background on how you moved from the advertising world to international affairs? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I guess it starts with uh, my family arriving in the United States from the Soviet Union uh, in the early 80s. And um, uh, my parents really didn't give me too much of a choice as to what I, I, I should, uh, what profession I should go into. Because as uh, most immigrants, you know, the focus is on making sure you can earn a living. And, and uh, that's, that's where my parents were. So they, you know, they told me I could be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Mm. Um, so I kind of started along that path. I started in accounting, believe it or not. Uh, but uh, soon thereafter, I think in intermediate accounting, I realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I, um, I gravitated toward uh, political science because I felt like uh, I could probably get into law from there. Uh, but political science really is what appealed to me uh, coming from a Soviet refugee family where, you know, certainly communism played a big role and why we couldn't get out for a long time and eventually did get out. Um, you know, the, the politics were always a topic of conversation in our family. So I was always curious about it, always interested in it. And I ended up uh, majoring in poli-sci. Um, I didn't get into poli-sci though uh, because uh, I, I discovered I don't want to be a lawyer either. <laughs> so, uh, and I felt like there was a long way to get to Washington from Rutgers uh, at that time. Um, so I did actually get into advertising and, and, uh, and design pretty early because I did have an inclination for those sorts of things. Uh, and I started um, uh, 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 kind of like a, a, a startup uh, right out of college uh, along those lines. And eventually, as I was getting close to getting married, uh, I figured I better, I better get some, uh, some steady work and steady pay. Uh, I went and got a master's degree at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Uh, and that kind of set me on the more um, sort of, uh, I guess, a, a traditional path in advertising, where I spent 20 years, mostly in New York, uh, being a creative director on advertising campaigns, having nothing to do with politics, uh, but, uh, but did eventually lead 
to an ad agency that uh, had a guy named Donald Trump as a client. And uh, after, uh, after he won the election in 2016, I ended up coming to Washington to work on the transition team and eventually uh, you know, got an offer I couldn't refuse, which is, how would you like to serve your country? Uh, and uh, it took me about two seconds to say yes, and I ended up in Washington at the State Department. So on that, in the State Department, were you particularly interested in the Middle East before coming to the State Department, coming from the sort of a you know, Soviet background? Um, was the, what was the lens in which you viewed the Middle East when you started working on Iran, on you know, the Abraham Accords related issues? Uh, so I, I honestly, I was just happy to be there, to be honest with you. Uh, I, it was an opportunity to give back to the country that provided a second home to my family. And, uh, you know, there was a point in time in the summer of 81 where we were essentially running out of, you know, from Soviet Union. We were homeless and America provided a refuge for our family. So it, I felt really passionately. So, so did my family. You know, when I uh, I, when I told my parents I was being vetted for the State Department, you know, first of all, they were speechless. Uh, but uh, when they came about, I think they were, uh, I think they were more proud of that than when I told them they were going to be grandparents. Uh, so it, it really, you know, it was just, I, I didn't have any high expectations to work on any particular portfolio. Um, I just w kind of raised my hand and said, whatever I can do, however I contribute with my skills and experience, that's what I wanted to do, which is how, how I got into the digital strategy because that was aligned with my background. Now, in terms of the Middle East, uh, again, it was just one of those opportunities that came about because Secretary Pompeo uh, started the Iran Action Group when uh, Brian Hook was, uh, you know, became, became the head of the Iran Action Group. And Brian had all the policy advice that he needed but what he didn't have is a marketing guy. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't have a comms person. And again, I saw an opportunity to contribute to something significant uh, and I raised my hand and fortunately, uh, Brian and Secretary Pompeo thought that I could bring something to the table and uh, that's how I ended up working on Iran and eventually from there, I ended up working on issues related to the Middle East and the Abraham Accords. Um, on that issue of digital strategy in Iran, the, um Excuse me if this was referred to differently in the State Department, but they just say you were in charge of digital strategy in Iran, pretty straightforward. But, and we all know, um, due to the last few elections in our own country, if nothing else, the governments all over the world try to use social media and other online platforms as part of their foreign policy. Um, so, simply put, what was our digital strategy on Iran during your tenure and how did you formulate it? Uh, well, I, I, you know, to take, take it back a step, uh, when I came to the State Department, uh, our government is pretty good at, at some things. It's terrible in some other things. One thing that it's terrible in is marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no marketing expertise in U.S. government. And I don't, I don't know whether that's the case in all governments, but I know in our government, that is a gap that needs to be filled. Um, so I, in some respects, I felt like I needed to uh, bring the team up to speed as to the best practices out there in this realm uh, to take the approach that uh, is, is second nature in the private sector, but was a foreign concept, you know, pun intended, at the State Department. Um, so, so basically, I, I just wanted to make sure that we operated as scientifically as we could, trying to solve strategic challenges. When in the private sector, 
you get a client and a client has a strategic uh, uh, goal that they want to accomplish and they use marketing and advertising to accomplish that goal. Uh, and I want to take the same approach with our foreign policy. So what's our strategic, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the top strategic priority we want to accomplish when it came to Iran or China or any, any other topic and tailor the marketing strategy, the communication strategy toward that objective. And I think we eventually, you know, got pretty good at it. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what that, that was my objective number one. In, in terms of what was our specific strategy on Iran, uh, look, there, there were a couple of uh, major um, initiatives that the Trump administration was taking started, starting with leaving the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal. Uh, that was that was that was actually my first big, um, you know, project on Iran that I had to tailor a messaging strategy around. Uh, now we knew that it was you know controversial in some circles. It is what President Trump said he was going to do on the campaign trail. So you know it, it didn't come as a surprise, but it was still controversial. The most important thing about um, the, the communications of this uh, policy approach was uh, to make sure that the Iranian people themselves did not feel that we were targeting them. Uh, this was a, an approach, this was an approach for us to deal with the uh, revolutionary Islamic government in charge. Uh, the Iranian people didn't look at that government as truly representative of, that, uh, of their needs. They pretty much had uh, you know, have, have, have exhausted all their patience with the government. So one of the key objectives of the communications was to make sure that uh, despite all the rhetoric and all the propaganda that we're going to hear from the Iranian regime, they understood that uh, how, our, how this policy is going to impact them. And the other part of that is to maintain open lines of communication with the Iranian people, as opposed to going through the channels that filter filter the information to them. So we focused on explaining the policy and ensuring that we were clear in, in trying to understand and represent their uh, their their um, their needs uh, to make sure that they understood that the United States government and the American people really do uh, want a relationship with the Iranian people, but they did see the government itself. Uh, as as their you know as as their adversary and so did we so we we actually we actually uh, were were allies in that. Were there methods of getting around Iranian censorship and such that you used? There are always overt and less overt ways of achieving means, especially in um, uh, you know when, when it comes to regimes like this that try and uh, crack down on. Um, uh, you know, internet services. Certainly, you know, if you, I don't know if you recall, but in 2019 there was a big um, uprising in in Iran. Uh, I think it was 200 cities. It was uh, uh, multiple demographics. It wasn't just students. It wasn't just truck drivers. It wasn't just uh, Azaris versus uh, versus Kurds. Uh, it was all of society uprising in 2019. And um, uh, one of the ways that the Iranian regime responded to it is by shutting down the internet, mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know, which was which was uh, a very 
the reason they did that and the reason all of these dictatorships try to pull stuff like this is to prevent the information from coming out as to what they're really doing. And the regime, um, you know, ended up killing about 1,500 people in three days. Uh, and I'm sure they would have wanted that information to be uh, not to not not to be circulated in the free world. But uh, uh, you know, we did. We certainly did what we needed to do to make sure that information did get out, and the, the voices of the people got out, and the voices of dissidents, and uh, the true story got out. And in fact. Um, you know, it it uh, it did shine a spotlight on uh, the brutality of exactly what was going on in Iran, and it made it it made it harder to um, for for folks that you know were predisposed to to sweep that stuff under the rug and and trying to prioritize JCPOA, for example, uh, to be able to to do that. And I think the Iranian people uh, were. We're very thankful of at least the attempts that uh, that we that, that we showed to um, uh, to sh you know to stand with them and uh, make sure that their voices were amplified. Uh, so yeah, I mean we 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 did have a concerted effort to make sure that the voices of the Iranian people were represented and the truth got out. I read that um, you have spoken openly of your admiration for Natan Sharansky. Uh, he's a hero of mine as well. Uh, one thing I've always understood is the distinction between a free society and a fear society. Um, does that sort of way of looking at the world, I mean, were you thinking about sort of the fear society of places like Iran um, or other adversaries when you were formulating your messaging and strategies? Uh, undoubtedly. Um, so as a Soviet immigrant, as a Soviet refugee, I, I can't say that I'm, uh, uh, I stack up to Natan Sharansky when it comes to um, his accomplishments or, or the, the ordeal that he went through to gain freedom. Uh, but he was always a hero of mine and, and certainly someone that my family uh, looked to as, uh, and, and was proud of um, in terms of being a leading dissenting voice on issues related to, um, uh, to, to, to freedom, really. Because that's 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 really what was uh, missing, certainly for most people in those societies in Soviet Union and, and Iran and Venezuela and China, uh, all of these closed societies. Um, but uh, but for us particularly, he was an example of um, the simple uh, an individual with a clear message, being able to overcome a regime that uh, seemed impenetrable. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, I always did look, I read his books and, uh, uh, you know, when I, when I got older, when I got more into, into these issues, uh, and um, fortunately I did get a chance to meet him um, mm. at some point. And it was, you know, one of the highlights of my career and my life uh, where we did get a chance to, you know, shall we say schmooze about the old country and um, and talk about the current challenges and uh, you know foreign policy issues like Iran and human rights and things like this. Mm -hmm. um, and he he actually um, uh, this is something um, uh, you know you have been involved with as well, which is highlighting the role of the Iranian uh, former Iranian regime officials embedding themselves in American universities. And I discussed that with him as well. 
And he was very, very gracious, actually, in recording a message uh, explaining, trying to ex uh, explain to, in this, in this instance, to Oberlin University, Oberlin College, um, why it's troubling that uh, Muhammad Jafar um, Mahalati, who happens to be the professor of peace, believe it or not, at the, at the Oberlin College, uh, you know, why, why that was a troubling thing and uh, why Oberlin College had a role to play to stand for its mission of defending human rights and standing up for uh, freedoms, uh, how that was incompatible with, um, with giving tenure to someone who was complicit in human rights abuses mm -hmm. and crimes against humanity. So, so, so Natan Sharansky to this day um, has, is vocal uh, about not just issues related to uh, anti-Semitism or um, or issues related to Jewish diaspora, but he is he is he, he is a voice of substance and um, and and um, on, on issues around human rights in general, uh, the Iranian people's rights, the Uyghur rights in China, um, things like this, which make him a true human rights. Beacon, you know, uh, icon, uh, and I respect that, and I'm 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 proud to have met him, and I'm proud to have uh, uh, tried to embed some of those values that uh, that I read in his books and that I've discussed with him, and the way that uh, certainly I saw the struggle between freedom and authoritarianism, um, and regardless of where it took place. Um, so yeah, I do. I you know, that's a long way of saying absolutely. Uh, that 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 uh, world vision is certainly something that's that's uh, that's been part of my outlook on on, uh, on events. Um, you already also stepped to another issue I was going to ask you about. You mentioned uh, Professor Mahalati. There's also Professor Masavian at Princeton. Um, these are clear, I mean, obvious, open um, former regime officials that I think it is undeniable to say they were involved in various human rights abuses and uh, crimes against humanity. Um, I guess two things. Is this, are, are these isolated instances or is this part of a larger strategy and what should America do with issues like this? I, you know, I, I love America for its freedom. I, I love America for the opportunities it offers. I don't love when bad guys take advantage of these opportunities and our institutions uh, not just look the other way at it, not just uh, uh, um, our, our, you know, our, our um, you know, discover these, uh, these things by accident, but enable these things. Mm -hmm. So it's one, you know, it's, 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 it's very hard for Oberlin or Princeton, for example, to argue that they don't know the backgrounds of the people that uh, end up teaching American students, you know, in their universities, I, I, I frequently wonder, you know, parents who pay, I don't know, upward of $80,000 a year uh, to send their kids to these pricey universities, uh, do they really know who's teaching their kids and what they're being taught? Uh, do they know that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, human rights abusers are teaching their kids about issues related to religion or foreign policy or, or human rights, even in the case of Mahalati? Uh, I, I still can't get over the Professor of Peace moniker that, that he's been able to pick up. Um, yeah, no, so, so um, look, I mean, I think 
the way to the way to address this um, is yeah, obviously there needs to be pressure. They need you know all of this needs to be brought uh, uh, in, into the sunlight so that people know what is going on uh, because they believe most people don't. Um, and once people have all the information, you know the 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 you know boards of trustees of these universities, the administrations of these universities will have to answer. And that is that is the, you know that that is the uh, that's the step number one. You know we need accountability for this. Uh, people should know about this now. You know in terms of having rules about who can and can't be a, called a professor or who can and can't be hired at a particular university. I look. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a free market person. I am you know I'm certainly uh, don't want government involved in uh, in in you know, in things that the Constitution forbids government to be involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm a proponent of that. But I do think there needs to be accountability. And information needs to be public. And they owe it certainly to the parents. They owe it to the students, these universities. Um, uh, they owe it to the public, you know, whose, whose tax dollars go in subsidizing a lot of these universities and programs. I wonder if a lot of uh, benefactors of these universities realize that their money is funding uh, this kind of, um, you know, this kind of an operation. So mm -hmm. I believe that once all the information is out and people know about it, um, that the right decisions will be made. The other major point, and that's something uh, you have discussed as well, which is the the uh, preponderance of foreign money in American schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, not just schools, but in too many places in the United States that have uh, influence over our policy or over, over actually our rights when it comes down to it. Things like censorship and surveillance in the case of China. And uh, certainly it's, it's in their interest. It's in the interest of, regi of regimes like in Iran or, or, or China or Russia to be able to uh, muddy the waters when it comes to issues related to things that are uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I do think there needs to be some congressional role in ensuring that foreign entities and foreign powers are unable to fund programs on American campuses mm -hmm. that are contrary to uh, our rights and are contrary to our national security interests. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's kind of a common sense approach. And I do believe that Congress can do more on that front. Yeah. Um, moving on to another issue. Um, you ran social media operations during the opening of the US Embassy in Jerusalem. Um, obviously a big event talked about for decades. Were you more concerned about um, the potential of it provoking a negative reaction as some critics feared? Or were you more interested in providing a positive impression of the event when you were do formalizing this? Uh, so my, my job at, uh, as the digital uh, strategy lead at State Department was to make sure that uh, we accurately uh, conveyed the information and the initiatives of uh, related to our foreign policy. So that's just the basic job description. Now, in terms of the strategic role, uh, yes, of course, I was aware of the potential controversy, which uh, you know, to me personally, on a personal level, was misplaced. Uh, this, there's, there's, uh, there was bipartisan agreement uh, about the issue of Jerusalem being 
Israel's capital. Uh, Congress passed the Jerusalem, uh, I think, Act in '95. Uh, so the the Congress has mandated the movement of our embassy to Jerusalem mm -hmm. uh, since '95, at least. Um, sure. So you know, it, the American policy here was clear, and it was not controversial. There was alignment. Uh, and frankly, you know, I represented the people of the United States, not anyone else uh, when I served at the State Department. Sure. So it wasn't that controversial to me. However, of course, obviously, I was um, uh, I, I was aware of the uh, so-called controversy beyond uh, the American administration. But no, I, I think my objective and this is um, this is another one of those best practices that I, I, I was trying to bring to to what we were doing was to make sure that the coverage of the event was uh, framed and, uh, and conveyed accurately. And, and we led the coverage of that event. Uh, to me, you know, a, a lot of government operations compare themselves to other governments. To me, the important thing about communicating our, our policy priorities is to make sure that they, uh, they get uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the let, me, let me start that again. Um, so one of the important things, one of the important priorities um, of, uh, you know, bringing our messaging up to speed with the real world, it was to make sure that the State Department and our comms operation led on issues that we cared about. Now we are not competing with other governments. We're competing with other news outlets, not just in the United States, but around the world. And the way issues get framed, uh, when people search for them, um, you know, or or look for information about them, um, is is decided not by us, but decided by search engines, for example, or decided by uh, you know news outlets or, or editors and, and various publications. So part of my job, as I saw it, was to make sure that we framed the things that we were leading um, first. We were breaking our own news, not some third party. Uh, and to that extent, you know, part of the challenge of, uh, of, of handling the coverage of the Jerusalem embassy opening was to make sure that the embassy opening was framed in a way that the policy intended it. Um, so for example, we worked with Snapchat at the time to make sure that we gave them behind the scenes access to all the things that were that led up to the opening, covered the opening in a in a um, uh, in, in an exclusive way to make sure that that audience didn't get information from third parties about what was being said, why it was important, who was doing what, but they received information firsthand. And uh, I believe at the end of the day, you know, we ended up communicating this important policy. Uh, initiative to an audience that would would have otherwise not have gotten uh, accurate information. Uh, we ended up, I think, getting seven and a half million views of the embassy opening on Snapchat, uh, which I think was a, was a was a win uh, for accuracy in my mind. So that that was kind of the approach. And in terms of the fallout of the actual moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, what people thought about it, what they didn't think about it was less relevant to me as a, as a communication specialist. What was important to me is to make sure it was conveyed accurately and, in the, and framed in the way that it was intended. Um, 
running out of time, but maybe I have two more questions. Um, you've talked a little bit, you talked about being in the room when you first heard the term Abraham Accords, and you believe it was the first time that was uttered. Uh, can you discuss your role there and how it affected things going forward? Sure. Um, Abraham Accords was, you know, which came about in the last few months of the Trump administration. Uh, it was like four agreements within the span of four months, probably. Um, five, if you include Kosovo. Um, uh, that um, that concept in itself was uh, brewing for a while, but not not with the moniker of Abraham Accords, but rather you know I think it it, 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 it was a byproduct of our policy toward Iran, I believe. Um, now, because the Trump administration reversed the Obama administration's policy regarding Iran, we exited the deal, we uh, imposed maximum pressure. Um, we we found uh, re, you know we regained trust among our allies in the region in the Middle East, uh, certainly with Israel, uh, the Gulf countries, the Gulf Arab countries, uh, and we found a lot of common ground to have conversations on issues certainly about uh, uh, related to security, but beyond that as well. And when people found themselves in the room talking about these things and finding common ground, they um, you know they saw possibilities for for something. Uh, beyond col co collaboration on Iran. Uh, so out of those conversations eventually came whispers of potential, you know, peace deals, uh, things that haven't been uttered for a long time. Um, now, you know, at the same time, the administration was trying to, uh, to push a, an Israeli-Palestinian agreement. Uh, if you remember, there was a peace to prosperity summit in Bahrain and and uh, th that that uh, uh, that um, I guess uh, led with the economic portion of that plan, and then eventually followed with the political plan. Uh, but but that was another milestone and step toward uh, normalization with with the countries that were involved in the region. And when the Palestinians, unfortunately, as they you know seem to always do, uh, not miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, when they missed another opportunity to uh, to create a better life for Palestinian people, when the, you know, we sought other possibilities, and uh, at that point, uh, the possibilities of peace deals with other Arab countries, uh, you know, became became a, you know a viable uh, um, possibility. So um, uh, the the words Abraham Accords uh, themselves was almost kind of a throwaway line that I heard in one of the meetings during that whole process. Um, not, you know, not probably in the, I want to say in 2019, probably, um, where we were talking about the possibility of future peace with, uh, between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And someone just kind of threw out, hey, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool to have this Abrahamic brotherhood in the region or something along those lines? You know, obviously, both religion, you know, Islam, Judaism, uh, uh, you know, being being connected to Abraham, and, and there's a biblical uh, connection. Uh, the people themselves are cousins, and all, in all, in, in the truest sense of the word, word, and it sort of seemed like a shame for cousins to 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 not be speaking to each other for such a long time. And when the cousins started speaking to each other. It seemed that family reunification was inevitable. So, you know, at that point, 
that idea of uh, of the people, you know, uh, Israelis, um, Emiratis, Bahrainis, you know, Gulf Arab uh, states, or even you know all Muslims in the region and beyond, uh, and is Israelis being able to reconcile uh, became a something feasible, and and so you know at, at that point somebody recalled the the Abrahamic moniker, and it stuck, and uh, I believe it came the official title of Abraham Accords, I think came about the last minute. It was, you know, people were busy putting them together and then we needed to call them something. And I think somebody just remembered that that's how we discussed them. And it literally was a, it was a last minute addition to the process. And, uh, you know, Abraham Accords, of course, you know, from a branding perspective, I think it's brilliant. Uh, can't, I can't take credit for it, but uh, I'm, I'm glad it's there. Congrats for utilizing it. Um... La any last thoughts on the Middle East and how uh, information flows and how the State Department and other government entities deal with those kinds of things? Sure. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm disappointed as to the trajectory of our policy toward, toward the Middle East in the last few years. I think uh, we, uh, you know, when the Trump administration uh, left office, you know, we, we had the region, we had probably the best relations with various countries in the region in a really long time. Uh, there was there was trust. There was collaboration on strategic issues. I think we took uh, quite a few steps backwards in that respect. I'm disappointed about that. Uh, I think it opens the door to players like China, as we saw, um, uh, you know, recently. And uh, you know, China and Russia are always looking for for gaps they can fill in the region. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm I, unfortunately we've allowed them to do that. And I hope that the administration will listen to the people in the region. I think that's step number one. You know, we can't make decisions for uh, people living in the Middle East from outside of the Middle East. They know what it, what they, what it takes for them to, uh, to have stability and prosperity. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, that's probably why JCPOA in and of itself was a fool's errand because all the decision-making of that process was done without the participation of players at the table from the region. Uh, and uh, it was doomed for failure. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, we, you know, this administration, the Biden administration forgot that lesson. And I think we need to get back there and make sure that our friends in the region um, are at the table uh, regarding all the issues that uh, that are important to them, and uh, that's the best way for the United States to keep its relevance and make sure that our voices are heard on the issues that pertain to our national security. Thank you very much, Mr. Kratikowski. Appreciate it, and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bye. Uh,